Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 150. I didn't even realize it was that episode, and then uh, my co-host had to point it out to me. Uh, It doesn't really matter that much, uh, in my opinion, because we don't do an official episode every week, and then we went several years doing an episode every other week. So uh, I feel like episode numbers mean more. if you're posting something every week because like, Oh, that means we've done this for 150 weeks and we've done it for notably more than that. So I feel like it's kind of a, I feel like I shot myself in the foot. Like for example, when David and I, we just recorded our 460th episode of battleship pretension. So that means we've been doing it for 460 weeks, which is insane to think. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, it's still exciting. If you decided it's exciting. Um, before I bring our co-host in, I'll just let him sit there for a moment, not saying anything. Uh, I want to get, uh, say some announcements. So, uh, first off, Happy New Year, everybody. And then uh, there is some new stuff on the website. Uh, a guy named Daryl Tufts, who's new to the More Than One Lesson family. Uh, he wrote a review of The Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino film. And then there is also right now a survey uh, posted on the website, and I would appreciate if you took a few moments. I think there's only four or five questions on there. Just take a few moments <clears throat> and fill that out. Uh, it's it's always helpful helpful to me. It's it asks like which guests did you like, which episodes do you like, that sort of thing, uh, and it just helps to inform the type of show that I will do for the next year. Uh, and then lastly, now this is not a function of more than one lesson. This is a function of battleship pretension. Uh, but you as more than one lesson listeners can take part. So I started this new thing over there. It's called Tyler's movie recommendations. So I, and and it will be posting every single day. That's the plan where, uh, I record about five minutes on a movie that I highly recommend. The movie will always be streaming so that you don't have to try and find it somewhere. You can just uh, find it online and rent it. Or if you have a certain streaming service, you might be able to just watch it for free. Uh, But yeah, so movies that I highly recommend so far as of the recording, so far I recommended, I've recommended Ravenous, The Homesman, Killing Them Softly, Hoffa, Congo, where you are the endangered species. Uh, and I, and those are the ones that I at the moment have recorded. And so I need to record, uh, more of them, but yeah, so that's, that is what is, uh, over battleship pretension.com. So you have a movie that you can watch every day. Uh, they will post at 11 AM Pacific standard time every day. That is the plan. Uh, I'm going to keep this going for a, for a month and then reassess if I want to keep doing it. Uh, so far the feedback has been good. And I would like your feedback as well. So if you go to battleshippretension.com and just start scrolling, you'll probably see one within a few posts because they go up every day. So just want to let everybody know that. Uh, And I think that is it as far as as announcements and, and that sort of thing. So we've got a lot of stuff to get to. But the first thing we need to get to is my friend, well, my co-host, Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi Tyler, how you doing? <clears throat> I'm doing fine. And I was just I was sitting here thinking about Congo after you said that name, mm-hmm. the name of that film, and it's been forever since I've seen it. From what I can recall, the best thing about Congo is Bruce Campbell. 
is in the movie. This, the worst thing about Congo is that Bruce Campbell is gone after the first 10 minutes of the movie. Maybe five. He is very good in the film. You're incorrect that he's the best part of it. Uh, the best part of it is Ernie Hudson. Hmm. I don't remember. Whose performance is marvelous. And hmm. then Tim Curry is a lot of fun in Tim it. Tim Curry's in the movie? Yes. You gotta rewatch Congo. I it's should. on Netflix right now. And um, you recommend it. And I do recommend it. And here's why. Because... So many people look back on it and think that it's hokey and that it's... That's my recollection. All right. Here's the thing. Big white monkeys. They're gray, but yes. Gray. Um, So many people saw it in terms of Jurassic Park, Hmm. both based on novels by Michael Crichton. Right. Uh, It was was marketed that way as like, oh, killer apes. Well, killer apes may show up in the first two minutes, but then they don't show up again until like an hour. As opposed to Jurassic Park, where it's dinosaurs the whole way. Well, what happens in that hour? Okay. Uh, people go to the jungle. They deal with leeches, hippo attacks. Wait, uh, hippo attacks? Yeah. And, um, like, uh, native tribes and their rituals. They run across ancient ruins. There's a... Uh, the hippo CGI. I'm stuck on the hippos they are now. Not. They are not. Hmm. Um, and uh, so the point is, it is not a horror movie. It's not a science fiction movie. It's a jungle adventure film. Hmm. It is directed, after all, by Frank Marshall, one of the producers of the Indiana Jones film. Okay. Every, so much about the film feels like a throwback, even down to the performances. When I think I told this story that when I talked to uh, Ernie Hudson at the International Christian Film Festival last year, I brought up Congo because I love his performance in Congo. And he immediately came to life and talked about how he feels like a lot of people don't understand Congo and that it is indeed supposed to be kind of this throwback to a certain type of movie from the 1930s that you just don't see very often anymore. So if you watch Congo with that idea, it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but if you watch it with that idea in mind, it's a thing that I actually really appreciate hmm. now. And I feel like you as a uh, as an Indiana Jones fan, I think you would enjoy it a lot more in that context. I'm going to take you up on the recommendation. I'm going to okay. watch Congo again. All right. I'm going to try to forget the the decade two decades of like buildup of my yeah. own opinion yeah drop that and and it's also helpful to just think of it as it is because my i'm sure that when you saw it it was the same way all of us saw it it was oh here's another jurassic park but with killer apes that'll be fun mm-hmm. and then when you realize it's not that it's only going to be disappointment but now that you know what it is you can actually see what is there? As well, I think to most not. of my disappointment in the first viewing was the fact that Bruce Campbell was gone in the first five minutes. Yeah, sorry about it's that. It's hard to come back from that. It is. But thankfully, I'm telling you, you got to just stick with it. I will. Um, Delroy Lindo shows up in one mm. scene, in a one wonderful scene, and you get a, a delightfully over-the-top Tim Curry um, in what... I, I was reading uh, Roger Ebert's review, and he said that Tim Curry is in the Peter Laurie role. Is not that he's doing a Peter Laurie type of voice, but just the the exotic foreigner that is not trustworthy, but also kind of funny. Right. Uh, that is that's the, and possibly gay, and possibly gay. Eh, I don't think they play that up very much in Congo, but uh, but yes, and I don't think that was a big part of Peter Laurie's performance in all of his films. That was just in the Maltese Falcon, in which that made in, up for the others. That's true, and in the book, the character is absolutely gay. There's no question oh, I didn't about know that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Huh. Um, so uh, they even come out and say it, but you, you couldn't use certain words in Hollywood at the time. 41. So um, it's a weird uh, place to go, but uh, so yeah, you can find that at battleshipretention.com. Um, 
and I want to try and keep it to, you know, I started out with movies that a lot of people have seen, movies that were fairly recent. You know, The Homesman came out last year. Killing Them Softly came out a few years Ravenous. ago. We've talked about Ravenous a lot That mm. on Battleship Retention. Okay. It came out in 1999. It's a wonderful film. Uh, but I do want to also talk about movies that maybe people aren't that aware of, like Hoffa. Like, people don't talk about Hoffa. No, I've um, never seen it. Yeah. A lot of people haven't. That's why I'm <laughs> recommending it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, sorry you spent so much time on that. Um, hopefully I have sold you on the idea. Now, speaking of selling people on ideas. Here we uh, are. That's what I'm going to use to get us into uh, today's topic. So, as of right now, and it is subject to change. In fact, it's subject to change very soon. As of right now, my favorite movie of 2015 is Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, which is what we're talking about today. Uh, it was written by Aaron Sorkin, based on uh, the book by Walter Isaacson. Uh, it stars Michael Fassbender, uh, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, Jeff Daniels, Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, and a number of others, but those are the primary five. And I'll say this, when I, wa- I, I got to see a, a critic screening of it, and I was mildly eager to go, um, I was not interested in this movie at all. I mean, I thought it was like, okay, I'm sure the performances are going to be fine. And it just seemed like it was going to be the kid brother of the social network. Hmm. You have a director that honestly, I don't think is as good as David Fincher. You have another Aaron Sorkin script and it's about computer technology. And even though Steve Jobs is a much larger character, both in film and in life, than um, oh my Zuckerberg. gosh, what's his first name? Mark. Mark, thank you. Mark Zuckerberg. Um, it just felt like a movie that was trying to ride that wave. And the inclusion of Aaron Sorkin, to me, was right. like the, the, the proof of that. Um, so I was not excited about the movie. I wasn't expecting really to like it. And so I went in with not even low expectations, just a low expectation of my response. Not even of the movie itself. It just felt like almost perfunctory. Um And the other thing that got me was that, so I had seen years ago a TV movie called Pirates of Silicon Valley. There have been two or three documentaries about Steve Jobs, and then there was uh, the film Jobs, starring Ashton Ashton Kutcher, Kutcher. which came out a few years ago, that was just kind of capitalizing on his death and the fact that Ashton Kutcher kind of looks like him. Um, There is even a, uh, there is even, I believe, a funnier die parody movie called I, Steve, which featured Justin Long as Steve Jobs. And it was basically the Steve Jobs story, but as a comedy. So that's how inundated we were. It's akin to like a, oh, here comes another Spider-Man reboot. It's like, uh Exactly. Exactly. Except it's a real guy. And that's the thing is that's how much of a joke it was to make a Steve Jobs movie. Um, Saturation. Yeah. And so I just thought like, what can, what is this movie going to add? I'm sure, yes, with Michael Fassbender, like it has a great cast. It has a good writer behind it. I'm sure it will be watchable and probably even very good. But in the end, who cares? That was sort of my attitude. And boy, oh boy, within, it took me about, it took about 30 minutes for me to realize what the structure of the film was going to be. And once that hit me, because up until then I was enjoying the dialogue. I was enjoying the acting. I was enjoying the way it was shot. Um, but only when I realized what the structure was going to be and the fact that the structure is not realistic. The structure is, I don't know if you'd say it's impressionistic. Uh, 
it's hard to say what it is, but it certainly is not your standard biopic, except it kind of is, but it's not structured that way. And I thought, what a brilliant way to tell a story. And I was, I was excited at the, at the prospect of finding a different way to do a biopic. Cause at this point I've seen them all. Um, and it just got me paying attention a lot closer. And then once we go into basically the second act, that's when it really started to hit me. And I really thought that something I, in my mind, what came out was this movie is something special. Um, now a lot of people don't like the movie. Um, did not do well. It did not do well. I, I do think that the studio just completely mishandled it. Like mm. they released in 2000 theaters. It's just like, I think you were over, you were overestimating the draw of Steve jobs and the draw of Michael Fassbender, who is a marvelous actor, but he's not a movie star. He's not a name yet. Um, and so it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it, it's a film. That, and then I realized I had to write a review of it. And I just thought, like, I don't even know how to write a review of this movie. But one thing I definitely knew driving home was that I would be doing a more than one lesson episode about it because Mm. there were so many elements to it that I loved uh, that I feel like a lot of biopics are missing. And it touched on some stuff that I thought would be very important to talk about uh, from a Christian standpoint. Mm. So that, I mean, I, I will definitely delve into the stuff that we, that we liked and maybe even the stuff we didn't like uh, in a moment, but that's the broad, that's, that's the broad strokes. Uh, what about yourself? Were you excited for the movie? Or, I was or not. Um, I'm kind of like you. I felt I, I hadn't actually seen the other Steve jobs incarnations. Um, and so it was more like maybe the saturation felt just like from a marketing point of view. It's like, oh, another one of those. I didn't pay attention to the other ones. Why should I pay attention to this one? Especially given the fact that so many people have said, eh, it's just kind of eh. And look, they're already taking, out of, out of, taking it out of the theater. So why should I bother? Well, the screener arrived. Um, uh, I'm in the Writers Guild. And so the screener arrived. And I, you know, I try to watch all the ones that come to my door. And I'm like, well, you know, why not? I'm not paying 15 bucks for it. You know, I whether or not I have like this overwhelming desire to see it, it's there. So why not see it? And then on the heels of that decision, I had not seen it yet. Um, you said you wanted to do, to do an episode and I kind of committed to it before I had actually even seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched the movie when it arrived about a month ago and then watched it again, I guess, you know, over the last couple of days. And the first time I watched it, I was kind of like the, the whole movie. I was kind of like you were in the first half hour. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I just, I had this sort of like, I would call it a very shallow criticism of the movie, which was that, as you described, you know, the, the, the structure is, is, is strange for a movie. Basically, it's, it's, uh, it's failure, failure, success mm-hmm. is, is the structure of the movie. Do we want to talk about, like... Uh, we can get into specifics in a moment. Okay. No, well, I meant, do we want to spoil anything? Because it's... A oh, um... You know, it's tough with a movie like this because not a lot of people saw it. And, also, and, it, and it left theaters pretty quick. But the thing is, most people... I mean, Steve Jobs' life and kind of what he yeah. succeeded at is already very well known and established. Yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and say, yeah, I'll go ahead and say spoilers, everybody. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want it, quote unquote, spoiled for you, maybe stop listening. Um, so, yeah, but I, I do want to be able to talk about the film in uh, as as uh, comprehensive a, sure. uh, a way as possible. Well, the, the basic structure is uh, the first act, first half hour is one of his failures the second act, taking us probably through about an hour, 15, hour, 20, is another failure. Uh, and the third act is uh, 
a major success. Mm-hmm. Um, but each one of those acts is, uh, what would you call it, like an expo or like a, where he presents it to the yeah. world? You've seen all these like videos online. It's like yeah. him in the, in the black shirt, you know, and like he's presenting it to a group of people in, in an auditorium. And so it's, it's like behind the scenes of each of these things three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time I saw it, I felt like, again, I'm getting back to the, the fact that it's kind of a shallow rebuke of the movie is that it felt like it should have been a play. It's like, it just feels, yeah. it feels like I, I kept wanting it to open up. Like, I mean, not just go outside or something like that. Cause actually they do, they do go outside a few times, but it felt like it needed to go to his home, you know, or some, some other character's home or something to kind of open up the characters, open up the story. It all takes place essentially uh, behind the scenes before each one of these shows. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. And I felt like it was like, as an experiment, it felt like too claustrophobic to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, the dialogue kept me going, mm-hmm. you know, in that first viewing. Because, I mean, Sorkin, you can't deny, is just a very entertaining writer. Yeah, Almost anything he ta- attacks is is uh, extremely fun to listen to. Um, very combative, extremely intelligent. Everyone knows yeah. exactly what they think and how to express that in, a, in the most eloquent way, eloquent way possible in the moment. And that's just kind of fun to hear. Uh, the second time I watched it, which was over the last couple of days, I believe that I have uh, a better appreciation. And again, it's one of those things where it's typical of you know watching movies once the initial disappointment is sort of gone mm-hmm. and that can't really happen again you already know what to expect in terms of the things you are disappointed by yeah well i guess i'm going to watch those things again mm, i'll be disappointed let's see if it's any better and it usually is because you're not thinking about those things you're looking at other things and this time i was i was much more enthralled to the uh the acting mm-hmm. and the uh i i really the first time I saw it, I dismissed the relationship between he and his daughter mm-hmm. and just sort of how it ended. We'll talk about that later. Um, the second time I got it, I guess, for yeah. lack of another phrase, I, I, I got it better maybe because I was following that line more closely because I knew what was coming mm-hmm. um, and I knew how it would resolve. So I was like seeing the kind of bits and pieces of story that were being uh, introduced uh, along the way that I kind of didn't pick up on the first time. And so it became much richer the second time. So the second viewing, definitely much better. Uh, but that was how I was introduced to it. Basically, it came to my door, watched it, watched it again for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting that you say that it should have been a play because I, I can see where you're coming from. And I and I definitely, I mean, it's, it's a three-act structure. Um, you know, it's all dialogue. It's all enclosed. Um, and enough other people have said that, that I, I definitely see where they're coming from and agree to a certain point. But what's interesting to me is that even as a play, it's kind of experimental hmm. to have just the concept of everybody, the same people in his life will keep coming into his life in the same 45 minute span before one of these presentations, even people that he is not friends with mm-hmm. anymore, people that are, adversaries in fact will show up you know including um and maybe specifically uh the jeff daniels part yeah great who early on is you know his ally but then becomes actually his enemy and then they fall into this uh, a very specific type of of relationship one could say 
a father son relationship. Sure. Um, and so it doesn't make any sense that he would be there <laughs> certainly in act two. Uh, but then at the same time, it also doesn't make sense that his daughter would show up to what would be at all three, especially at a time when Steve jobs did not want his daughter around, right. uh, and did not acknowledge that she was his daughter. Um, and then it makes sense that his assistant would be there at all times. It mostly makes sense that Steve Wozniak would be there all the time, but it's the way that it plays out that there's, that there's these vignettes where it's, I'm talking to this person. It is now time to talk to this person and this person, by the way, none of them were on the schedule. They just show up. Right. Uh, well, that's, that's a strange structure and it's one that people would say, well, that's not believable. And I think the first, the first person to say that would be Aaron Sorkin because it's, it's just, again, it's, it's like a boiling down, and a concentration of the different elements of Steve Jobs as a person and just in his life, just cramming it all into one space so that you saw the essence of who he is uh, without going through all the standard motions of, okay, let's now watch him get in a fight with his ex-girlfriend uh, at her house. Right. No, it's, he is trying to do with, and it, and again, like the structure to me underlines the theme, which is, this is a guy who is trying to do something. He is trying to do this thing, but then relationships and then his own deep seated flaws, uh, get in the way. They just keep coming into, in, in his own mind, they get in the way. Meanwhile, the rest of us acknowledge that that's what life is. Mm -hmm. Um, he's trying to do something that will revolutionize the way the world operates and fails to recognize that other people are necessary for that and necessary for him to be uh, a decent person. Right. And so it's, I can't like, it's so interesting that what is to many other people, the chief flaw with the film is to me, it's best asset. Hmm. I mean, it was going to have great acting no matter what it was going to have great, great writing no matter what, but by structuring it the way that it, that, that it does, I think it's what makes the movie, it takes it, for me, from very good to great. Yeah, it feels very much like a dissection. Yeah. And I can't imagine that that word didn't appear or didn't come up in sure. the story dis uh, discussions. Yeah. It's like, let's really dissect this guy. Let's put him in one Petri dish mm -hmm. and just slice him up a couple of ways and see what he's all about. And it's going to require that we suspend a lot of disbelief yeah. because these people won't be, wouldn't be there in real life, yeah. but they are in his life and that they're in his head cramming into his head all the time. He's constantly trying to push them out and let's just like, uh, actualize that. Let's actually put yeah. them in that space with him. And in a way it's almost like this must be, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the idea of, of being inside his head. Mm -hmm. This must be what it's like to be Steve jobs you know, to a certain extent, obviously, I don't know how he actually was, but I'm okay with a film maybe <laughs> not being totally realistic in its depiction of somebody, but, uh, and maybe boiling them down to their essence. But this must be what it is to be this level of genius or visionary or whatever, where this is how he sees himself. This is how he sees his life. This is how he would condense his life into, this is how he would sum up his life is I'm I'm perpetually working on something and then there are other things that I need to deal with. And so it's almost like um, 
there's a there's a movie called The Limey. Did you ever see it? Yes. It's I think it's marvelous. And there's mm-hmm. an editing Soderberg. Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. There's an editing trick in there mm-hmm. that is where he will have a conversation. The the main character has a conversation with somebody, and the conversation is very linear. But within the conversation, they're in different settings. Right. Like they'll have a two sentence exchange uh, as they're walking along the beach. And then they'll have, then the next two sentences will be inside an apartment. Right. And then the next two sentences will be at a restaurant. And you just think like, why is this happening? Even though it does, it definitely has a flow that made me not question it. Mm. But then when it is revealed that the character is on a plane thinking back on what's happening, it's what it ultimately comes down to is I remember the essence of the conversation and I remember the the places we went. I wish I could remember exactly where we said everything. So what I'm going to do is I've, I've mentally boiled the conversation down to this one thing spaced out over all of these moments, uh, over all of these settings. And that to me is what, Steve Jobs is it's it's the boiling down of these relationships at key moments in his life you know where he lives and the type of house he lives in probably isn't that important to him you know all these other details the the outside world is not really that important mm-hmm. to him what's important is the rolling out of these products not even necessarily the designing of the products it's the presentation you know because at that it's when you're presenting something that you are showing how much of a visionary you are you get to show not, off you get to show off you know um, and you get to change the world when you're designing something yes you're changing the world but not in a big grandiose fashion when you are telling people hey this thing that you previously did not know about you're about to, and it's going to change the way you look at everything. You're going to want it. You're going to want it. Um, and I say that, by the way, as somebody who I am looking at my iPhone in front of me. Exactly. And I'm recording onto, onto uh, an Apple laptop. Yes. So Surrounded by Steve Jobs. Yeah. And then my, uh, my, de- my Apple desktop is over there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy um, how much of a... And the reason that I, that I use Apple products, and I don't mean to... You're wearing a black turtleneck right now. I am, yes. And I'm wearing these little spectacles. And uh, I don't mean for this to be a commercial, but the reason that I use Apple products are is probably the reason that Steve Jobs was so excited about them, is they're very user-friendly. You know, I am not a sound engineer, and yet GarageBand has made it very easy for me right. to record... Mm-hmm. Uh, three podcasts i bought my first mac because i needed to edit some mm-hmm. stuff that i shot so yeah. there you go he, yeah. knew, he knew that we would need it and so there's just something i don't know it's so he definitely was a visionary you know and this is a film that i think captures the essence of that uh both the positive and the negative it's such a tight rope though mm-hmm. uh i gotta i gotta think that writing a movie like this and i say writing because that's how i tend to look at movies yeah. as like from a writing perspective, like, could I have done this? Do I know enough about this kind of person that I could actually write this kind of thing? And I honestly could not write this kind of thing without, yeah. uh, well, obviously you want to talk to a lot of people anyway when you're researching a script, but it requires such an understanding. Just watching it, I think, requires an understanding of that kind of person mm-hmm. in order to be on his side at all. Yeah, And any movie maker wants you to have some kind of identification with that person so that you'll be interested in seeing it to the end. I mean, they want you to watch their movie. And so yeah. there has to be something about that person that, that, that identifies you or you can identify with, whether it's um, the fact that you yourself are that kind of person. You go, I can relate to the fact that he feels like he has to essentially lop off his family responsibilities because he has to get this thing done. 
or I can relate to the idea of, you know what, this thing happened in my life, but I can't, I can't think about that for the next two years because yeah. I've got to get this done. I just wall these things off completely. And, uh, you know, so there are some people that would be, that would identify with them in that way, but no. I don't. I, I, I'm not the, the kind of person that is driven in the kind of way that is depicted in this kind of movie. Yeah. And I'm certain that Sorkin and Boyle and anyone else involved with the actual structure or the writing of the movie would have to have the conversation, Steve Jobs, as we're depicting him, is not likable. Yeah. And also, he's in every stinking moment of the movie. Yeah. So, how can what can we do to make people want to watch to the end for some mm-hmm. modicum of theme, thematic, you know, uh, lesson learned or whatever it might be, if that's even there. Um, so I, I think my point is that I think this would be a difficult movie to sell if yeah. you weren't Aaron Sorkin or Danny Boyle. It would yeah. be a difficult movie to sit down and write and be true to that character, but also feel like, yeah, everyone's going to want to watch this, you know, incredible, you know, well, and it turns out nobody wanted to watch it, but oh, uh, good point. But at the same time, um, and I think that what they do have on their side is that Aaron Sorkin and Danny Boyle are creative types. So, and, and I would say Aaron Sorkin, especially who has been in charge of TV shows for years, whether they work or not. You know, West Wing worked. Mm-hmm. Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip didn't. In the newsroom, somewhere in between. Right. Um, and yes, there was Sports Night as well, which also, which he wasn't Aaron Sorkin yet, which is to no. say he wasn't a name yet. I loved Sports Night when I stumbled on it one mm. day. It was like, this is so good. And I didn't really, I was, I didn't know who Aaron Sorkin was, although he'd been around for a while by the time I got to that. But it was, it was, I was amazed at the kind of writing that it was. Yeah. And then I actually didn't start watching West Wing until much later. And I'm still only on season four, um, kind of stalled out a little bit. <clears throat> But his his style is so captivating. Yeah. His writing style is just so intelligent. I, I, there, you I, could expand on that, obviously, but that's just the basic word for the kind of stuff that he does. It's very intelligent. I am not always a fan of his because there are there are patterns he can get into oh, that are not good. I think that's why I stopped um, watching West Wing for at least a little while because you really do pick up on the, the habits, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Sometimes even bits of dialogue that he gives one character as kind of a, a throwaway. Oh, you did that already with that other character. Yeah. My friend, Kevin Porter made a, uh, <clears throat> made a, yes, uh, I remember this, a video called Sorkinisms, um, that, uh, really took off by the way. Yeah. Look he, for it. Uh, look it up. It's yeah, very it, fun. It's pretty amazing. And Kevin very smartly, uh, posted Sorkinisms the day that the newsroom started. Mm. So people are going to be talking about Aaron Sorkin either way. Perfect. And then this just blew up. Nice. Um, and rightfully so. It's also very well edited. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, and also there's just, his stuff is all, I, I think it also very reliant on actors. It's, I, I think it's why West Wing works better than Sports Night because the actors in West Wing are better and they're n- hmm. so much more different. You know, Martin Sheen is very different than Rob Lowe, who's very different than Richard Schiff, who's very different than John Spencer, who's different than Allison Janney. Whereas a lot of the actors in Newsroom kind of have a similar, they're of a similar age, they have a similar, similar quality to them. And after a while, they all seem to be it becomes very clear that they're all talking the same way and they all come from the same person. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the West wing, and I think in this film, they do seem to be 
different people who are all the thing they have in common is that they're all very smart. Uh, whereas Sorkin at his worst, the thing that they all have in common is that they were all obviously written by Aaron Sorkin and they are all him. Um, and that is when he's at his worst. Uh, but I do, but I think this is not that certainly. And it's worth noting that the last few movies he has written, I think because they have been based on books and even if he, even though he changes them quite a bit, I think that grounds him a little bit hmm. and it gives him something to latch on to. Uh, you know, you've got social network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, um, all, I think, really wonderful scripts um, and all of them adapted from hmm. from books. And so uh, I think that. And with this, I'm sure that the structure of the book, I haven't read it. I'm sure the structure is different than this film, but it gives him something uh, like something to anchor him a little bit to keep him from flying off in too many Aaron Sorkinian directions. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's definitely a bound story. Yeah. It's bound backstage and it feels very much like it could be uh, a nice, uh, brother film to uh, Birdman. Yeah, absolutely. Constantly behind the scenes, constantly dealing with the anxiety, not so much his anxiety in this movie as everyone else's anxiety based on the way he's behaving. And you know the and it's not it's not necessarily shot the same way as the West Wing, but it's not unlike that where you have characters wa- the walk and talk, mm-hmm. you know. But in this, it it has a different quality to it because there's one character that's in every scene, and he's always the one walking, and everybody else is trying to catch up. There is a quality to him, to the character of Steve Jobs that he's sort of like a shark, and that. He has to just keep moving. Hmm. Otherwise, he will die. Um, and everybody else, keep up or get eaten. You know, yeah. that's that's kind of how it works. Uh, and so... I think to that end, uh, the, the constant refrain of, we're not going to go on late. Yeah. He keeps saying that each one of these things several times. It's like the, the constant element of um, the, the ticking time bomb, they call it mm-hmm. in screenwriting. It's like, you got to do this by then or this yeah. will happen. And he refuses to go on late. So that means any conversation he's having or anyone he bumps into on the way up front yeah. is going to be a hindrance to that. And he's going to eviscerate them on the way to the stage if he has to. And then he does. Yeah. And, and stuff like that, ref, uh, uh, a refrain from one act to another. Uh, and the structure of this allows you to see clear arcs in the character, you know, because I believe in act three, there comes a moment when he doesn't care that they're going to go on late Mm. because he's talking to his daughter. Exactly. And now, and that's the thing, of course, when you look at it like that, well, the arc is huge and obvious and all that sort of thing, but you also get to see the way relationships change, uh, and the way other care and the fact that so often he's, having the same argument with characters over several years, like with Steve Wozniak, um, it's, it's, you need to acknowledge the Apple II people Mm -hmm. over and over again to the point that now I'm starting to get mad at Wozniak. Just like, not going to happen, buddy. I think maybe let this one go. Give it up. Um, but then when you recognize who Wozniak is and what he represents, because that's the thing on top of everything else, every character represents something. Wozniak is the past. He is where everything started, which I have tremendous affection for, but I need to leave it in the past because if I'm, if I'm stuck in the past, I can't be moving forward and I am always moving forward. So you're my friend. I love you, 
but I can't do what you need me to do. And even though I personally, Tyler Smith, I think that that is wrong. And what's the harm in acknowledging people? It's for Steve Wozniak is the past. And so he'll always have a place, but the place is not in front of me. Just as uh, Jeff Daniels will always be not merely the professional part of his life, the not the the part that he, where he has to work with people uh, in an environment that is not inherently visionary, which is technology or real or just business in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, there's also you know the the father stuff, the the one person that even when Steve Jobs wins over John Scully, uh, he still feels subordinate to him and he feels like he still looks up to him and respects him and that sort of thing. And then you have, you know, Kate Winslet who is his, his perpetually professional side. And she will, even though she gets upset with him, she is almost the embodiment of what he needs in his visionary life, um, which is just go along with what I'm doing. I know you don't agree with what I'm doing and you may disagree with how I'm doing it, but you, but she's always going to go along with him, which is why when she doesn't at some point, it gives him pause, yeah. you know, and, and that speaks to the arc of, again, the relationships and that sort of thing. So again, this, so much of this can be boiled down for me, boil, boiled down, <laughs> Danny Boyle, um, mm can be boiled down to the structure because to repeat myself, the writing was always going to be good. The acting was always going to be good. It was always going to be at the very least competently directed. It's always going to be cut together pretty well. The, the wild card here, what, what really takes it to the next level is the almost experimental level of the, the story structure. Um, and I just love it so much. But, but we can move on and talk about some of those individual elements as well, if you like. Well, I guess one of those would be what I was about to say, which is that uh, you mentioned representation, like a char- characters represent mm-hmm. certain things. For me, Stuhlbarg, Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah, he's great. Kind of represents, he's sort of this audience surrogate in a way, mm-hmm. at least for me. I mean, he represents me in this movie because yeah. here's a guy who, not that I'm super great at what I do. I don't even know what I do, but, um, but he's really good at what he does, but he's, he's, he is subordinate. There's mm-hmm. no way he's ever going to be anything but subordinate to, yeah. to, uh, to jobs. And, uh, he's required because of his knowledge set to perform certain functions that Steve jobs counts on. Yeah. And when Stuhlbarg can't pull that off, he even says at one point, uh, Job says, who's the guy that can actually fix this? Well, I'm the guy that can actually fix this, and I can't fix it. Yeah. Well, fix it anyway. So, he has to fix it, and then yeah. he does. Um, well, kind of. Well, he fix it the way one fixes a fight. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He cheats a bit. Um, but it did say hello. Yes. And that was the point, that it should say hello. Um, but I, I, I most identified with him in this entire story because... I felt like that most of my working life mm-hmm. is the guy who could, you know, is, is okay at his job or good at his job, but always feels subordinate to somebody. And I love the fact, and this is why I'm saying he represents me or maybe the better me, or this is my identification in the movie is like, go Michael Stuhlbarg, because even though he's this guy who could get crushed by Steve Jobs, he stands up to him every, in every act. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he still has to do what he is told to do. Um, he's still kind of kicked around. He's yeah. sort of a, a little, almost a pet. There's like somebody that can, you can just like kick around. 
uh, on Job's part, but he uh, he still says what he thinks mm-hmm. to Steve Jobs' face. Almost at whatever cause. It's almost like, will you please fire me so I can be out of this environment forever, please? This is ridiculous. Why, why am I not quitting? So, he says what, what's on his mind by the end. He's actually doing things behind Jobs' back yeah. to help Jobs' family because Jobs yeah. isn't doing it. And then bearing the, you know, re, the recourse, the angry recourse of yeah. Jobs himself and still standing up to him. It's like, I'm doing the right thing by you for these other people who you're completely neglecting. Mm. And just like any other Sorkin character, um, he's saying all this with, you know, pure eloquence. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's kind of this small, you know, toad, toadish guy or toady yeah. who should not be standing up to a guy like Steve Jobs, but he does. And I really, I just sort of cheer inside of my own heart that, that he's doing that. You know, you bring up a good point, which I, which I think is also special is that each of these characters, because they represent something different and because they are, they're still totally fleshed out because even though they represent something for him, they aren't, uh, overly simplified. They still have feelings. They still stand on their own two feet. And even though he is the lead and everybody else is supporting, they are fully fledged characters. And in, and, but because they are also sort of the essence of something, uh, I think it's interesting, and I, I'd be curious to know. Listeners, feel free to weigh in in the comments section. Uh, audience identification. I could see there being people that identify with Kate Winslet's character and identify with uh, Seth Rogen's character and Jeff Daniels' character. You identify with Michael Stuhlbarg's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's strange for me and what I, and what I feel like inherently sounds egotistical is I identify with Steve Jobs. What? Yeah, I know. Mm. I'm just saying I'm the primary host of more than one lesson. Am I stool bar to your jobs? Yeah, that's about right. I could see it. I could see it. Shut up, Robert. Constantly worried, getting <laughs> crushed under the thumb of Tyler. Absolutely. Um, trembling. So, uh, now, of course, there's not a lot that I relate to because there's a line that I wrote down where somebody accuses Steve Jobs of wanting people to dislike him. And he says, I don't want people to dislike me. I'm indifferent to whether they dislike me, you know, and there that is a difference def- there. Yeah. And that is definitely not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is something about just you have an idea and it seems like the best possible idea. And then there's implementation. It's like, oh, why don't people just get what I'm trying to do? Um and, uh, huh. Interesting. Yes. The first thought I had in the, okay, everybody, this is a very vague idea, but when I said, why doesn't anybody understand what I'm trying to do? I realized that that is a line directly out of the first X-Men movie in which Magneto says it. Hmm. Well, who plays the young Magneto? It's Michael Fassbender, ah. uh, which I find is very, very interesting. So there must be, I guess there's a quality to him hmm. that just like, why do I have to explain myself to you? Yeah. Um, and so, huh, that's interesting. I don't think he was cast because he was Magneto. I do, but I wonder if there's just an element to him that a certain type of arrogance. The frustrated just, genius. Frustrated genius. Like, I mean, he does exude intelligence. I'll say that even when he plays a character that is not smart. There's just something, it just, Michael Fassbender cannot hide it. Yeah. He just seems intelligent. Frank. Did you see Frank? I did not see Frank. He's got that quality. I mean, he's playing a guy who's so uh, 
just shriveled by self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And he's wearing this giant fake head, the, basically the entire movie to the very end. Um, so it's all in his voice. Mm-hmm. But even in his, in his sort of shriveled, you know, terrified of life voice, there is exactly what you're talking about. It's like yeah. a confident, I mean, he's still trying to put together a band. Yeah. He still has confidence that that's going to go somewhere at some point. And he's like, I, I know that I've just written the perfect song. You yeah. guys get on board, but he's still just completely shriveled in yeah. terms of his self, I don't know, self, not self, maybe self-respect. I can't remember the movie much. Yeah, I've, I've been told that I would like it and it's directed by, I believe, John Crowley, who went on to make Brooklyn, which is what is probably going to give Steve Jobs a run for its money as far as my favorite movie of 2015. Oh, what was the movie? Brooklyn. Oh, right, right. Um, I think that's correct. I might be wrong about that, but maybe I'm thinking of the, maybe he directed Room. Uh, maybe it's Lenny Abrams, Ray which is great. Abramson, which is my fourth favorite movie of the oh year my right gosh, now. So, um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So yeah, listeners, if there is a, is this, if there's a specific character in Steve jobs that you, f- that resonates with you and you, and you look at that person and say, that's me all over. And that could include his daughter who admittedly we see at different ages. Right. And so it might be harder to resonate with any one of them, except maybe in the third act when it, when she's more of an adult. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you, that you brought that up. Yeah. I do love Michael Stuhlbarg in general. I'm super happy that since a serious man, he's gone on to have a pretty nice little career for mm-hmm. himself. Um, and that he will often show up in movies that are very, very good. Uh, or and then he's not so good. Such as like, uh, was it, it was the Woody Allen movie, uh, the, the Italy one, uh, to, to Rome with love. Oh, I, I didn't, I think didn't he was in that it. one. It was one of those. It was kind of a small part and kind of a vignette. That sounds about right. About, oh no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was, uh, it was blue Jasmine and Kate Blanchett. Oh, that's right. He's good in that part. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie, uh, the movie is so, well, we don't need to get into a Woody Allen movie because yeah. we'll start, we'll go on for half an hour. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's a, it's kind of a throwaway part in a fairly decent movie, but he does a good job with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, he takes what could have been a throwaway part mm-hmm. and turns it into something. It's um, creepy. And then, yeah, it's uh and then he was on uh, boardwalk empire playing a very mm-hmm. interesting character and he does amazing things with it where he plays a, basically a gangster and he's not a guy that I would ever view as threatening, but he becomes threatening wow. precisely because he, I don't need to act threatening. Mm-hmm. I simply am. And that can be the most fr- uh, frightening thing of all. So, um, so we'll move on to uh, some specifics here and there. I mean, we could talk about all the specific performances um, individually and talk about how, why each one is great. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to doing that, except they're all great. And, and it's I, self-evident and I, as you're watching it. It, it is. Um, the performance I come away from, from and it's and I did have this thought just now um, is well maybe the reason that this that this character and this performance strikes me is because maybe this is the character I, I resonate with but I don't think it's that I think it's just I have such a I have such a love for Jeff Daniels as an actor and the, the actor he has become you know whether it be in The Martian or a few years ago well I guess ten years ago. 11 years ago now in the squid and the whale. Mm. Um, and just, he's, 
he's 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 come so far since uh from uh, dumb and dumber which i recognize i mean he was in you know terms of endearment before, before yeah, that he was already well established yeah. long before then yeah um but that is the thing that a lot of people know him for i think the first thing i probably saw him in was uh ar- arachnophobia hmm. um there's just he's gone from having a very a real everyman what you saw why did you see arachnophobia it was not a good call <laughs> for me to do because i wanted to i was eight years old and i wanted to prove i wasn't scared of spiders ah uh. Uh, it proved you all were. It di- yeah, all it did was make me more afraid of them. Hmm. Um, were you afraid of Jeff Daniels for a while? Terrified. Just terrified. By association? I was like, oh, this horror movie, Dumb and Dumber, is just going to get to me. <laughs> um, but uh, they're, they're, Jeff Daniels used to have sort of an everyman quality. Mm-hmm. And then I think for whatever reason, maybe it was a squid in the whale, I'm not sure. Uh, he, I think the inherent intelligence of the actor, I think he is a very smart guy uh i think it just started coming through as he got a little bit older because he he exudes intelligence in the squid and the whale uh i don't like the newsroom but what i have seen uh he does you believe him i believe him i I think he does wonders with that part Mm -hmm. and i think he's really amazing i'm i'm from an oscar standpoint and just an award standpoint it bothers me that he's gotten no consideration at all why do you think that is i don't is it story or movie choice uh, maybe, I don't, but at the same time, you know, Michael Fassbender is like a, an obvious choice for best actor, as for, at least as far as nominations. Mm. Kate Winslet just won the Golden Globe last night and right. is probably going to not be nominated for an Oscar. Um, but like maybe because maybe Jeff Daniels and Seth Rogen are like canceling each other out. Um, mm. Kind of for the same reason that people are having a hard time nominating any of the actors from Spotlight. But Rachel McAdams keeps getting nominated because she's the only woman. Mm. Um and it's almost because there was a lot of buzz for both Mark Ruffalo that and Michael slightly Keaton. slightly sexist. Maybe want to clear that up. Well, I just mean that like she stands out mm-hmm. because in in the midst of a of a mostly all male cast in Spotlight and in uh, Steve Jobs, uh, any female that is right there in the thick of it with them will get your attention. Um, and it's just in an all male film. It's like. Oh shoot! Which one of the? It's like oh, these are all. This thing is full of great supporting performances. Which one will we nominate? Well, obviously for supporting actors, this one because it's the one. Oh, I see. What you mean. Um, but you know, with these guys, what are we gonna for like for Spotlight? What are we gonna nominate? Michael Keaton or Mark mm-hmm. Ruffalo or Liev Schreiber? You know what? None of them. I don't have the energy to figure it out. We'll just here's Rachel McAdams. She represents She's the entire cast. Kinda, yeah. Mm. Um, so, uh, I forgot. Oh yeah. Uh, so maybe maybe the reason is because Seth Rogen and Jeff Daniels are both supporting parts, mm. and people seem split between the two of them as to which one they like more. I know some people love Seth Rogen's performance, and I think he's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, My favorite performance by him in any movie that I've seen of him, of his. He was in a movie called Observe and Report. Which I have not seen. Many years ago. And it's marvelous. It is very uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable film. But it's he, a comedy. It, I thought it was a comedy. It is. Sort of a deeply uncomfortable comedy. All right, one could say a dark comedy. Okay, Ooh, and those. his performance uh, is so committed that it's just like that will always be, hmm. unless he does something really, really special. And I think he does do something special in Steve Jobs, but unless he really does something completely out of left field, uh, Observe and Report will always be my favorite Seth Rogen performance. Okay, um, but in this, there is something. I think what what the two performs. Actually, hang on now. The three primary supporting performances 
Kate Winslet, Jeff Daniels, Seth Rogen. My, Michael Stuhlbarg obviously is right up there with them. He gets his own scene in but the third quite. act, but not yet, not quite. Um, not quite as pivotal to yeah to what uh, Jobs is forced to think yeah. about, which actually speaks volumes about the nature of Michael Stuhlbarg's character is that he's always there, but he's not quite there. You know, <laughs> kind um, of dispensable. But it, and I would say, I would throw his in as well. There is a common denominator in all of those supporting performances. And that is a real sadness. Hmm. I mean, they might be very good at what they do. They, there might be an energy to them, but I get a real sadness and maybe even a sense of heartbreak from Jeff Daniels. I get an anger mixed with sadness and maybe a, a mournful quality to Seth Rogen. And then I get a sadness and a desperation from, uh, Kate Winslet. So while they might be sadness and something, that is the one thing that I see in all three performances. Hmm. It, almost as if to say, by by linking ourselves to this guy, we are only ever going to get so much of his attention. And you know, it's there's a there's a line in the book Affliction that I think might be in the movie, but I don't think so. Um, that is so profound to me and so sad, where. Because, I mean, we talked about the movie Affliction, um, very much about abuse and, and that sort of thing. Um, and in the narration of the book, uh, the character, uh, the, the narrator talks about these abuse, these abusive men and the women who have the misfortune to love them. And there's just something very, there's something so sad about the idea. It's like, oh, I love this person and they're so terrible. This is never going to go well for me, but I, but I do love them. And that seems like the story of every character in Steve Jobs. Well, Kate Winslet actually says that in her, mm-hmm. in her, in that last act. She says, I love you. You know, I do. But, and then she kind of lays yeah. out the law for him in terms yeah. of his daughter. Yeah. As if to say like, boy, my life would have been a lot easier if I didn't love you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a real I don't know that. And I think that is something that I find very interesting about this film is how much all of it hangs together and all of it does seem to be stemming from the same place. Mm. Um, And again, to go back to the structure, structuring it the way that you do, uh, the way that they do um, really helps to emphasize that, that all of these characters different though they may be, are all the same type of thing in the life of Steve Jobs. Do you find that Steve Jobs, or as represented in the movie by Fassbender, is sad as well? Nope. Do you think that he's approaching a point in his life when he can feel sadness suddenly, like by the end? Maybe. I view him as tragic, which is not the same as sad. Um, Tragic is something that I can observe about him. Sad is a thing that emanates from him. And I don't see the character as sad. He does not seem sad. He, there's like a hint of regret at the end when he's talking to his daughter. It's, sure. We are talking about Ark earlier. It's like, the, it, it's it's telling that the Ark seems so big for Steve Jobs in this movie when really on paper it's not that big. It's like, wait a minute, he's, he's going to be late for his thing for the first time ever just to talk to his daughter? Yeah. That seems almost like, that doesn't seem like it would be a momentous moment in his life, yeah. but it is. Oh, yeah. And that's a huge deal for him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the biggest deal for him. But it's certainly it's, not sadness, and, and it's not even really regret. It's more yeah. like, in, in one sense, it almost feels like just a bleed over from all of the other emotions he portrays, all the anger yeah. and frustration and uh, the, the juggernaut of, of uh, ambition, yeah. that he's 
it's more like he's, how dare you, he's not saying this to his daughter, but his attitude almost feels like, how dare you come here and tell me all of these things? I, I tried my best, yeah. you know, with the facilities that I had in my own brain, you know, accompanied with all the things I knew I had to do with my life. You know, this is the best I could do. Yeah. And you're telling me blah, blah, blah. Um, that almost feels like the attitude. So it's yeah. not even regret, but it is still a, an arc or you see a change because of the fact yeah. that he's still, he's still holding on to this anger um, and the ambition and all of it. But just the fact that he's going to let the thing go mm-hmm. over by two minutes just to talk to his daughter is a big deal. Yeah. And it says that he's kind of grown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of, kind of telling. It's basically saying, even if I'm upset with you, you are now as important and in that, at this point more important than the thing that is to me the most important thing in the world. So now obviously you are the most important thing in the world. And so it's, yeah, it, it's what's communicated by just the fact of what he is doing. Right. Um, that said though, uh, I had this issue with both viewings of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, even though I was anticipating it the second time, I thought, well, maybe it'll be better this time, but it wasn't. Um, when, regarding the daughter mm-hmm. and the end of the movie, if we can talk about this. Sure. Uh, when he uh, c- kind of follows his daughter down the hallway, away from the stage where he should be about to roll out this new product, mm-hmm. he stops her, kind of grabs her by the arm and turns her around, and he's like telling her the way it should be, or the way he is to her, or how yeah. he should, he's definitely earned his respect uh, from her. Um, it felt like to me that the daughter turned a little bit too easily to acceptance of him. And it happens over the course of kind of a pop, a soft poppy type song or kind of a feel, a feel good kind of mm-hmm. song uh, on the soundtrack and almost a, a bit of a montage feel with regard, like he was talking to her. Now he's moving back toward the stage, looking yeah. back at her in the hallway. She's looking back at him and the music tells you that her mind is changing mm-hmm. somewhat with regard. Oh, I can kind of see him in a different light now. And then he walks on stage. He's kind of still, you can kind of feel that he's still thinking about her even when he walks out onto the stage. Yeah. And he had, had handed her the very first drawing that she made on the very first Mac mm-hmm. back in 84. Um, and she, she, I don't remember doing anything on the Mac in 84. Well, here it is. No. It's this drawing that you made on iPaint or whatever he called it. No. And, uh, and like, it's almost like this token. It's like this bridge from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And it's like, oh, all is better now. Yeah, you, our relationship is restored because you've kept this thing for your entire, you know, push toward greatness. You've always remembered me because I, you've held on to this drawing that I made, mm-hmm. and now I'm holding it in the wings, and I'm looking at you, and I love you now. Yeah, that's. It feels like that's what we're supposed to feel about this, mm-hmm. and that feeling of being manipulated into thinking something that wouldn't happen in real life felt like an affront to me both times in equal measure and i feel like it's the greatest flaw of the film is that it tried too hard to kind of have a happy ending with regard to the daughter uh yeah i could see that but at the same time i will latch on to something you just you just said which is it wouldn't happen in real life and if we're boiling things if we're boiling things down to the basics and to their essence which and it sounds weird to be talking about the basics in a film written by Aaron Sorkin, who is like the, the opposite of Ernest Hemingway. He will use a hundred words if, if for a 10 word sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if we're condensing things down, then, you know, we saw the picture, 
she doesn't remember, but he's been holding on to it all this time. Uh, and this is what is conveyed, you know, that, well, why would he hold on to it all this time if I wasn't important to him? I'm, I, I'm looking at him in a different light. And while, yes, I do think that it, it, it does, I wouldn't say bend over backwards, but it does bend to have that kind of happy ending, to have that kind of I think it bends, The problem is that it bends in a way that the rest of the movie did not bend. Mm-hmm. You, know, and you mentioned, like, you use the word experimental. And so much of it does feel experimental with regard to the, all the people being there and yeah. every act and all that kind of thing. It felt like the most uh, biopic movie kind of thing, like the, yeah. the, the toy that the kid played with, you yeah. know, the mom saved, you know, and, yeah. and showed. And it has, it has weight, it has narrative weight because of where it came from and the moment that it's represented to the other character. Yeah. Um, it, it just feels, it feels the most screenwriter 101. I guess. And you know what I think might actually work? Uh, what what keeps me from being too frustrated with it is that it's the only happy ending. His ending with Wozniak is not happy. This is true. You know, his his ending with Stuhlbarg is not happy. Um, Daniels? Jeff remember. Daniels is not particularly happy. That one, it's not, like, there's not a lot of animosity there. But it's more just mourning what was lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Kate Winslet, that is sort of tied into the thing with, with the daughter. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of by association happy. Um, but because he hasn't had such a change that it's like, all right, time to mention the Apple II people, you know, and you know what I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to bring Andy Hertzfeld on stage. So he finally gets some credit, you know, cause he's been working on this for years. Yeah. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. He, it's just not in him to change that much so when you see changes like this which are a big deal um and when another character recognizes that i'm okay with it because it's not a 100 percent change it's probably a 25 to 30 percent change but other people in his life still are you know given the shaft i think i would have respected the movie more at the end had it remained true to its experimental Mm -hmm. qualities and had that moment as presented, except the daughter doesn't look at him that way. The mm-hmm. daughter goes, you think this is going to like win you back to me? That's, that's ridiculous. And or, that's, or at the very least not in- knowing how to feel, mm-hmm. just feeling conflicted. Like I'm still angry. This is, this isn't going to let you off the hook. So now what, you know, that's I, so I, much better than what's presented in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to harp on it too much because it's, it, it, because she is, I mean, she's a major figure in his mind, mm-hmm. his life, but it feels like she's not a, ma- a major figure in the movie yeah. because you see three different actors playing. Yeah, her. And which that, and you can't avoid that. You know, yeah, it's you just can't. the way it, it works. Um, but it does keep me f- invariably in almost any movie. Um, I will have a hard time relating to a character if I see them in like two or three stages. I might respond to one specific performance or something mm-hmm. like that, like in. Um, Atonement, which is not a film I like very much, but Saoirse Ronan uh, in the in the first act. So this, and we see this character at, at three different ages. Yeah. But when we first see her, that's the part. That's the performance that jumps out to me. But it it never feels like it's the same character all the way through. Right. Um, different actors. Eesh. I just watched uh, Red River for the first time. Oh, I love that movie. Uh boy, oh boy, what a fascinating, amazing astounding movie like yeah <clears throat> it just are you going to talk about the ending no i was just i was going to talk about that like 
we do see a character show up, uh, this young, like 14 year old boy, oh, right, right. he shows up and then he grows up to be Montgomery Clift. But he, that first part take it lasts maybe 25 minutes. And then there's another hour, hour and 50 minutes left. Is it that long? It's two, it's uh oh yeah gosh. it's like two hours and it's like it two hours like and it. ten minutes. That's yeah. such a great movie. Um, Howard Hawks. Yeah, it's marvelous. I was I'm John I'm, Wayne. I'm so happy that I saw it and now own it. I got it for Christmas. Awesome. Um, and so uh, so that's one where the character resonates with me because for the vast majority of it, I see him this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had a movie. <laughs> if we're talking about like endings that go a little bit too flowery at the end, that mm-hmm. one definitely has that. Where at the end they hug instead of kill each other. <laughs> There's yeah. something like that. I can't remember exactly. But they try. They do they try to kill each, each other. other up. And, and it's like, ah, yeah. oh, come here, son. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but Howard Hawk says, you know, I'm not here to make some tragedy. I, I just, I want to entertain audiences. And I did that. Let's move on to the next movie. Well, and to a certain extent, the turn is, in my view, it's not unlike John Wayne and the Searchers. It's a guy mm. who is not used to feeling this type of affection and certainly not used to expressing it. And so when the, and only when the chips are down, does he even realize exactly how he feels. Mm -hmm. And so because the character himself is so unaware and so disengaged from his feelings, I'm okay with that, that dramatic of a turn, uh, in the character. But anyway, um, excuse me. So, uh, we should move on, um, there are a number of uh, lines that I enjoy from the film that I wrote down. Uh, one is Steve saying artists lead and hacks ask for a show of hands. And I feel like so much of the, of the, of the character's philosophy and the way he acts towards others can be summed up in that line. Absolutely. Hacks ask for a show of hands. Like, yeah, that's also democracy. Uh, like let's, <laughs> let's, let's look at this. Let's put this into uh, government. Uh, we've got fascism versus democracy mm. and fascism. You know what? I'll admit it gets stuff done, but at the same time, people aren't super happy with it. Uh, so, I, but it's, but it is a line that, you know, as a, as a critic, I look at directors that are by all accounts monsters mm-hmm. and they make some of the best movies of all time. Who would one of Prob- those be? Oh, I would say Orson Welles. Mm. And I'm not sure if I'd say Stanley Kubrick is a monster, but he, he certainly demanded a lot of people. Uh, Werner Herzog. Mm. Um, let's see. Oh, shoot. Oh, uh, I'm not a huge fan of his, but I will acknowledge that he makes some pretty great movies. Um, James Cameron, uh, Michael Mann is one that is apparently pretty tough to work with, hmm. but he, but he know boy, does he know what he wants and he's going to get what he wants. And if you get in his way, uh, he has no sympathy for you. Um, and so it can be gotten though in other ways. I just watched a documentary on George Stevens, mm-hmm. sort of an unsung I mean, people don't talk about George Stevens, but he made great, great movies yeah. like Giant. Yeah. Um, but he uh, he's an extremely quiet man. Mm-hmm. and But he did not direct The Quiet Man, oddly enough. No, that was Mr. Ford, who I think was kind of monstrous on the set. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we, we shouldn't get off on, on that tangent, but, but there are other ways to do it besides being a monster. Well, so would you go as far as say that it's not binary? You can be decent <laughs> and gifted at the same time? Is that what you're saying? I would absolutely say that. Interesting. 
interesting. That is a line from Steve Jobs in which Steve Wozniak says that. And and I think what what fascinates me about Steve Jobs and what Okay, so I was talking to a friend about this and I'm I'm going to butcher his problem with the film. In watching it, he can totally acknowledge that Steve Jobs in the film and and in life obviously did some amazing things, but what makes him uncomfortable is he doesn't want to believe that somebody as deeply flawed as Steve Jobs can be capable of such tremendous things. And he's not talking about success. You know, bad people are successful all the time. That's just the way the world works. What my friend had a problem with is that, like, I don't want to believe that somebody as bad as Steve Jobs can be. A guy who denied the paternity mm-hmm. of, like, somebody that's obviously his daughter. Um, that a guy as bad as that can be able to be the visionary that he is. That can make such wonderful things that are that, and can cha- literally change the world, you know. He didn't want to believe that they are capable of that. If somebody is sex is successful and they're uh, and they manage to like latch onto something and people respond and give money to it, that's one thing. But this is somebody who, within them, is capable of tremendous things and then does them. Hmm. And he just didn't want to believe that. And to me, it is a movie that lives in that tension, to use a very Christianese type of phrase, um, that. The same thing that makes him, this gets back to the, the artist lead and hacks, uh, hacks ask for a show of hands, is that the same thing that makes him such a visionary is the, same, is the same instinct that makes him such a jerk to the people around him, which is he cannot, maybe it's, it might be more than he's unwilling. He might be unable to compromise. If you're able to compromise, you're going to be a really good person because that's what life is all about. But you might not be the best artist if you want other people to approve of what you've done. And therein lay the the tragedy, perhaps, of Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. except, of course, it is possible to be decent and gifted at the same time. It's very we do, we do know that. It's, oh, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I was excited to have you for as my co-host for this, because it's just like it's 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 very much like Whiplash, uh, except we have. We we see that oh Steve Jobs is definitely Charlie Parker. He's a lot bigger than Charlie Parker. Um, he has in fact changed the world uh, through computers and stuff. And even though he's even if he's not the one to design them, like it was his vision, mm-hmm. his uncompromising shark like vision that uh, that made these things happen. And maybe if he wasn't that much of a jerk and just would steamroll over people maybe that wouldn't have happened maybe we wouldn't have the iphone when we did you know maybe we wouldn't have the ipod or you know what the the heck would be would we be recording on right now we would just be talking on a stage in front of a bunch of people we wouldn't be recording at all wow that's that's my theory um so that's the frustration that that is that's the tension and that's what I wanted to talk that's that's one of the big things that I came away from the movie with uh, that well I'll talk more about in a moment but there is to com- to uh, transition into our companion film I ran across a line Beautiful. in Steve Jobs I'm like this 
This was meant to be, and people say there's no God. This podcast writes itself. It writes itself. So I had already decided what the companion film was going to be. But then as I was making notes for this, I wrote down this line. Steve Jobs says the two most significant events of the 20th century, the allies win the war and this, and the, this could be any number of the things that he's done, but the allies win the war. Now, how did the allies win the war? Well, through a number of uh, Mm -hmm. things, but uh, you know, having very strong, a very strong military and very strong military leaders like Dwight Eisenhower and I would say General George S. Patton. Absolutely. So the companion film, and again, this was decided before I saw that line. Uh, the companion film is the 1970 Franklin uh, J. Schaffner film, Patton. Ah. Uh, it won a number of Oscars. Picture, director, actor, adapted screenplay, art direction, sound, editing. So it won a bunch of stuff. Uh, it was a big old Hollywood movie. And it is... Uh, and it, it was no, I was thinking of either this or Lawrence of Arabia as a companion film, but I already had Lawrence as a companion film. So hmm. I love Patton. I first saw it when I was like 14 and thought it was amazing. That opening monologue is hard to beat right from a, from a writing standpoint an acting standpoint and an iconography standpoint. Absolutely. It's one of the most iconic shots in history in, in film history. I think, um, and I have a very specific memory that I saw Patton and I loved it so much that I got it for Christmas from my brother and my parents. Like they had not coordinated. But one thing that they both knew is that Tyler loves the movie Patton. So I got it on a two disc uh, on a two tape VHS. Oh, fantastic. Uh, you know, for when I was probably 15. And so. I really responded to the movie and then I moved away from it a little bit because I thought it was like really unnuanced and that sort of thing when I thought I was better than Patton and all that sort of thing. And then I returned to it over and over again precisely because for a lot of the same reasons that that I come back to Lawrence of Arabia, even though I think that's a much better film. Um, And that is that I don't know what drives Patton. He doesn't really say his motivations. He He says it once. Uh, Which, I mean, it's implicit in everything he does, yeah. but he says at one point toward the end, when he's kind of sidelined, he says, all I want to do is lead men in battle. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. But why? Why is but that why? the only, even then, under that, why is that the only thing you want to do? And there's a moment when he talks about, like, he's talking about war, and he's like, I love it. God, like, something like, God help me, I do love it, mm-hmm. so. Um, With bodies lying all around him. Yeah, and it's it's like a very dark thing, but it's like, how can you love this? Like, I want to know so much more about why he does what he does. He is such an enigma to me. Mm -hmm. An implacable personality. You can't can't see beyond just the the gruff. Yeah. The rough. And to me, it's it's so interesting because I I think the exact same way about Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia, but their their bravado is so much different, you Mm -hmm. know? And so... uh, well, it's also a good companion piece in terms of the structure, because whereas uh, Steve Jobs is is one failure, mm-hmm. another failure, then a success, and it's also broken up by acts. Of course, uh, Patton is much longer, yeah, um, and the acts cover more than just these things. But essentially, the first act, if you will, of Patton is the uh, the push toward Messina mm-hmm. in Sicily, and then the second act is about him being sidelined yeah. in the Normandy invasion. Yeah. And the third act is about the push through France to recapture Berlin. Yeah. Or was it Paris? 
I believe it was Berlin. Yeah. Um, and so it's these three major things that are kind of the, the stakes in the ground that everything else is kind of pushing toward in e- each individual act. So, and there's failures. Like he's basically doing nothing. I mean, he's not doing nothing, but he's in his own eyes. Yeah. In the movie's eyes, he's doing nothing with regard to the Normandy invasion, which is the biggest deal in all of World War II. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of like the next, you know, in, yeah. in Steve Jobs. It's like this thing, well, I got to do this thing because, I mean, it's going to be a failure, I know, um, but it's going to get me to Act 3, essentially. It's going to yeah. get me to the next thing. Is I, I'm, I'm going to hook up with Apple again, and this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm willing to suck up a failure for that. Yeah. Um, likewise, Patton, he's just dogmatically beholden to doing what his commanders say. Mm-hmm. Even though he's railing against it to whoever's standing around him, he's still going to do what he's told to do. What he's told to do is to go to wherever and uh, and do nothing while the rest of military humanity is like yeah. pushing into Normandy Beach. Um, basically, you're the decoy. And what a yeah. what a slap in the face to a guy like Patton, yeah. who knows he can do so much more. He can actually win the war if he if they would just listen to me. Um, but he's uh, he's sidelined yeah. as the decoy. But he and, does it. And he undoubtedly sees the purpose it serves. Right. Which is like, we're going to need a decoy, and it's going to need to be a convincing one. And I'm a pretty convincing one. Yep. You know, and just like, I'd rather it not be. I'd rather be right there in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And how could I not be? I'm Patton. I am Patton. But, all right, I guess I'll do this. Yeah. And probably because he's willing to do it. You know, and you're, you're absolutely right. Because, the ne- you know, in, in Steve Jobs, there's the next thing. Because he's willing to sort of bide his time and do what he's supposed to do, even though it, it, it looks like failure, it feels like failure, it's just like I'm just kind of hedging until hedging my bets until this thing comes up. Yeah, there's kind of a thrill to watching a character suck up a huge failure like that while yeah. it's happening and knowing that it's going to be a failure. Yeah. And knowing that they know that this is just leading to something that will definitely be better down yeah. the road. Um, there's a thrill to that because in our own lives, we're so often, at least speaking for myself, I always feel like I'm stuck inside a failure. Yeah. Of some kind on, in some realm of my life. I feel like, oh, I can't get this done or I can't, I can't, I, I need to make sure this person knows this or get this thing that I've done to this person. And it always feels like it's not happening. And so I always feel like I'm in the middle of failure. But if only I could predict or know with the kind of courage and uh, self knowledge that they have that this is all okay. Mm-hmm. This feeling of failure is okay because you know there's going to be another opportunity down the road yeah. where you're going to either, you know, in a sort of a uh, a mental sense, you, you know, you're going to carry a lesson from this failure into the next or more than victory. one or more than one, absolutely, or a physical thing, you know, something mm-hmm. that you've actually made that didn't go anywhere could actually be the thing that then catapults you somewhere else in whatever realm of work you are. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's it's fun to watch that. And also, you know you're watching a movie, so at some point there's going to be a victory of some kind. Probably. Although there there are plenty of biopics where uh, things go bad, and then they just get worse. And then the guy dies. <laughs> and it's like, okay, Pollock, uh, that was... Uh, yeah. I know that's his life, but boy, that was really depressing. Well, honestly, the, I think Patton kind of fits that as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he here's a guy who says explicitly, all I want to do is lead men into battle. Yeah. And he doesn't get to do it after a certain point, and they, he's essentially retired. Yeah. And he withers. He withers before you on screen. You can see the, the kind of slump 
in those last couple of scenes. And there was actually a, a TV movie years later called The Last Days of Patton, mm-hmm. and it shows him after the war, and it shows how he died, and it is so not the way he wanted to die. How did he die? Uh, it doesn't show it in the movie. No. Uh, there is a, an accident with a cart. Uh, like, That's in the movie, though, where he misses it. Oh, maybe it's oh, maybe it's not that. But he uh, says, "Imagine that getting killed by a cart after yeah, all that." I don't, maybe maybe it doesn't involve a car. It, it, there's a car accident. A car accident. He's in a car accident. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And he's paralyzed for a while. Oh my gosh! And then dies. Patton. Yeah, it's it is like it is the it is so not how he wanted to go. I, I wonder why they didn't include that because I got so close to the end of his life and then just didn't show that. I wonder why. Because I think they wanted to see, and and we'll we'll get to the very the very last line of Patton is how I want to end this episode, so we won't mention it right now. Yeah, don't. There's more. But um, but there is this this element of we want to show him. You know, he's not known for this. He's not known for dying this way. He's known for helping to win World War II, yeah. and for being this deeply flawed yet amazing man. And that's what we're gonna do. But the note that the film ends on does hint at this isn't going to last. Like we might know him for this, but it's not, but he is not going to die the way the, the only proper way for a soldier to die according to him, which is the last bullet of the last (laughs) battle of the last war or something like that. Um, and so, uh, and we'll get, again, we'll, we'll get to that more in a moment. But, um, so one thing that I, Here's what I here's what I came away from when I was watching Steve Jobs and what made me want to talk about Patton as well is one of the things that fascinates me so much in the Bible is that and by the way I might accidentally use the word character when talking about figures from the Bible I recognize that in doing so it makes it sound like I'm talking about just some other book and then I'm talking about fiction uh, I will try not to I happen to f- I do that from time to time. I don't mean to. And so please don't read more into it than I am actually saying. I'm telling you in advance, I might say character when I mean figure. Uh, That so many figures, so many heroes from the Bible are so tragically flawed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's astounding how many people that we are supposed to theoretically emulate are terrible people. Um, The one thing they have going for them is that they do believe in God and they do believe in, in Christ in the new Testament and that they are trying to follow him often unsuccessfully, often deviating far from the path, but then they'll try to get back and, and that, and like what they're trying to do and what they believe is a big thing, you know? And it's just astounds. And one thing that gets me is I, I do feel like if the Bible were purely fiction and you and it's written by people who want the reader to believe these things and to follow them and to be like, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. They'd probably make these people less flawed than they are. Right. Um, <clears throat> even right down to Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? That's a weird thing for Jesus to be saying if you're going to write this thing. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and the one that gets me the most because he was called a man after God's own heart is David. Everyone knows David and Goliath. They know King David. They know the Ark, all that kind of thing. Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Di- yeah, that's true. There are two Arks in the Bible. Ark of the Covenant is the one I'm talking about. 
Um, although after Noah's Ark, Noah himself has quite a bit of stuff go on that is, that makes him not look very not, great. Not so savory. Uh, David goes on to not merely sleep with another man's wife, but in an attempt to cover up the pregnancy, I believe, that comes mm-hmm. from it, through, I would say, master manipulation, brings this guy, who's off at war, brings him back, knowing, okay, well, they're probably going to sleep together. I mean, come on. He's on shore leave. Um, and then sends him to the most dangerous part of the war so that he will be killed so that, okay, the pregnancy is now explained and I don't have to look at this guy's face after scoring, scoring with his wife. Uh, and so the all of my crimes, all of my sins have been covered up. All better now. All better now. Man after God's own heart. What? It, it, that to me is like one of the biggest contradictions. And I remember trying to think like, man, if you were going to make a movie about David and I, and people have, but if you wanted to make a movie about David that, that shows the David of the Bible, not the one who's like super wise, not the great warrior or anything like, or the humble shepherd or anything like that. If you wanted uh, certainly that as well, but also this lascivious manipulative murderer, like how do you even do that? How, what kind of tone could you possibly strike? Steve Jobs, that is the tone you strike. Hmm. He is un, he's charismatic. He is undoubtedly brilliant. He has changed the world. He has done great things. He is also a horrible person. Now, he hasn't murdered anybody, so that's going to be a tough sell. But this, I, to me, this is the tone you strike. And it's not unlike the tone with Patton, who is capable of doing tremendous things, but can be petty and really malicious to people. Wouldn't you say, though, that, you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying and hearing this for the first time. I'm thinking about the the major difference between these Steve Jobs and David Mm -hmm. would be the God thing. Sure. And the, the fact that... <laughs> the whole uh, God... You know how God it thing, is. That God is a character too. Sure. Um, that God... Um, that David, from a very early age, relied on God, relied on faith in God mm-hmm. to supply his strength, to supply his own livelihood, all of these things. So, that by the time he's a king, and he's still, God says, a man after his own heart, mm-hmm. um, but he's still doing all of these things. Yeah. If you watch Steve Jobs in the context of what you just said, you think, well, if Steve Jobs knew God, he would reach out to Wozniak and say, yes, I will acknowledge Apple II. He would reach out to his daughter sure. and say, you are absolutely my daughter. He would reach out to his ex-wife, girlfriend, whoever she was, yeah. and say, I love you. I made a huge mistake. I'm going to be responsible. So, all of these things would be um, of a piece with being uh, a, you know, an inventor after God's own heart. Um, and he would he might still show these dark darker strands of his personality mm-hmm. and and the ambition will rear its ugly head and he'll still have to get this thing made but there'll be a nuance if you want to shrink god into just being a nuance mm-hmm. it'll be the nuance of the relationship he has with god and the, and the ways that that's directing him but david has that he has that nuance and yet he still does these things what does that say well and i will also say that the 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 
a hypothesis that you're putting forward, which is if Steve Jobs, and we'll speak about it in the, in the film, if this, if the film Steve Jobs is trying to follow God, then he won't be any of these things. But of course, we know that's not true. It's not I true mean, of me. It's not true of me. Like I mean, and there are there are like some of the best, pa- some of the biggest pastors of all time. But these are big things. These are like murder. And, you know, cheating on your wife. Well, that definitely happens to a lot of very godly people. You know, maybe not the murder thing, but I have no doubt that there are probably pastors out there that cheated on their wives, might have an illegitimate kid out there that they're just like, I cannot do this. I cannot. I got to cover this up. I have to cover this up. Otherwise, and by the way, the next episode will be very much about the idea of covering up our sin. Um, so then the important move to make in terms of talking about these guys is that it's not it's not the bad things that they've done that this sounds real simplistic it's not the bad things that they've done they've done that make them men after God's own heart mm-hmm. it's the fact that they've done these things and then turned from them yes. or or found God again yes. it's not that God has led them through this path and okay here do this and then I'll redeem you and then you'll be an even greater man. And I would venture to say they are men after God's own heart because they understand God's heart, which is Mm -hmm. to say, just because I've done this terrible thing, which will probably have consequences, that does not mean I have to be distanced from God. I can come back to him. And so I think anytime you are seeking reconciliation with God, that means you understand that there is reconciliation to be found. And thus, I think an argument could be made that you are then somebody after God, after God's own heart. And then, you know, if you want to get like, if you want to start breaking down phrases, uh, this is undoubtedly not what the Bible means. Uh, but I like to think in these in these terms that he is after God's own heart in the same way that uh, I am chasing after somebody. Hmm. He's oh, he's after my heart, you know, uh, which is it's a thing that he's pursuing. And if you are after this thing, then you will be after it, you know, in, in both senses of the word and possibly making huge mistakes no question about uh, not even possibly will be Uh, yeah um so to me like i would love to see uh, a depiction of david where we do see some of the worst things ever and i and what what fascinates me is that i feel like audiences would watch it and they would see the terrible things that he's done and then him trying to turn away from them and i feel like the audience would be like no it's unforgivable can't be done Hmm. He is a bad person now. There's nothing. There's there's no redemption for him. Look at look at these terrible things he's done, and that to me is what's so fascinating about Christianity. And to to answer again the the simplistic paraphrase of what my friend had said, we don't want to believe that bad people are capable of goodness. We are okay. We are not okay, but we will accept the idea that good things will happen to them. But we don't like the idea that good things will spring from them. And what I think is so fascinating, and, and, and it happens in every biblical figure that isn't Jesus, is that they are cap- they are, God uses them for tremendous things, and their willingness to go along with that is to their credit. But they are also capable yeah. and often complicit in doing horrendous things. Is it James? Uh, a little rusty on, on this concept, but I think somewhere in James it talks about from the same heart comes evil and good essentially Mm -hmm. or the same tongue can say something very kind to somebody and also something very evil to somebody yeah and so it's all i mean that's humanity yeah fallen man is this mix of good and evil 
all the time. And there have been times, and I'm sure you can relate to this. There have been times when I have, you know, I've been a bad friend or I've lied or I've lusted or any of these other things. And I feel as though I do, I should stop doing more than one lesson. Now, I recognize that more than one lesson is not leading the allied forces or uh, creating the, uh, a new kind of computer. I recognize that. This is a very low audience ship. Uh, but to some people, it is very important, and, it has, and I can acknowledge that it has done quite a bit of good in the lives of some people, including mine. Um, and there are times when I just feel like, I'm not good enough to do this thing. I'm, I'm not good enough to represent God. Look at this terrible thing that I've done. Uh, so I'm just going to sit this one out and God's going to have to use somebody else. Cause how could he possibly use somebody sure. like me? Um, and then I pray, you know, and then I pray about it and then I read my Bible and I recognize that, you know, it's one thing if my heart is in a bad place and I'm genuinely by recording, not going to represent God. Well, that's different. Um, but if I'm in a place of repentance and, wanting and desperately wanting to represent God well, uh, then I don't think there's anything wrong with me going and, and well, hang on. I'm not sure if I, cause like there are pastors who do something terrible and then they have to step down from being pastors. And I feel like, okay, that's a real world consequence. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And and maybe there should be a real world con- uh, consequence to my doing some of these terrible things. And then some, and then it comes back on me in some way as a function of more than one lesson. And maybe it means I, I shouldn't do it for a while. Who knows? But to let myself be defeated by sin hmm. and not do the thing that God has called me to do. And that I've seen yield tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous fruits, uh, in the lives of me, my friends and listeners. Um, and I feel like that's from, from stories like this, you know, from Steve jobs, Patton, David, Noah, you know, Paul, Paul to me Mm. is like the biggest one. Um, to me, and then I'll actually, uh, make reference to Paul in a moment, but to me, that is like one of the most encouraging things. One of the most exciting things is that you are like, you are capable of doing tremendously bad things. You have done bad things. You will do bad things. You might be doing a bad thing right now. God will not let himself be limited by that and will not let you be limited by that. If you have a repentant heart and that sort of thing. And if you are still actively trying to do the right thing, um, I don't know what now you just had a confused look. What do you got? Cause it felt like an earthquake just then. Oh, oh no. It's just the, this, the floor in the office when people are walking I was about around. to throw myself under the table. <laughs> mm, this table I built from target. Oh, it's not going to help you. Gotcha. Okay. Um, in fact, you might be in more danger sitting under this table <laughs> that I built from target. Um, um so I got you. Uh, well, no, I, I, I completely relate to that. I mean, I work with a youth group at my church at our church mm-hmm. and, uh, Every time I go in there to that classroom, I'm like, I mean, I don't teach necessarily, so it's not like incumbent upon me to be, right. you know, that responsibility is not mine. Uh, but I am there to listen or to talk or to help help lead some discussions. And uh, I never feel like I'm worthy of that kind of responsibility because I, I feel like that there are enough things that I've done 
or that I think or a certain way that I think or whatever it is that's not pure enough mm-hmm. or godly enough that I should be in this room with these people trying to show them who God is. Yeah. And so, but should I, should I not go in there? I don't think so because I do still feel uh, drawn to that. I, I just remember so well what it was like to be that age mm-hmm. and to be confused about a lot of things and any modicum of some of advice you know, coming from someone who is respected and respectable, um, I absorbed it. It was it was great. And I want to be as close to that kind of person for these kids as I can be. Um, and I think, uh, to take it up to another level a little bit, I think it helps in, in the David level, the fact that he's in the Bible and he's a man after God's own heart. You think, well, if I was a guy who said, I want to work with the youth, and I go into the youth room and we're talking about something, and a kid is talking about something that he's done or has thought about doing or his friend did. What do you think of that? And I have done nothing wrong my entire life yeah. or have not seen evil in the world or I have not drawn an opinion about what evil other people do or myself or I have not experienced forgiveness for my own faults and sins. What good am I? Yeah. What good is David in the Bible, if he's a man after God's own heart and he's proven himself to be perfect his entire life, yeah. we'd go, well, I can't do that. Instead, what we get to do is say, well, I didn't, if you want to measure sins, you know, I didn't do that. Yeah. And God forgave him and he was a man after God's own heart, then I guess I can be also. Yeah. And it's encouraging. And so, all that to say that I, I relate and I think anyone who is thoughtful can relate to that. And and is not legalistic and is not um, assuming that they're better than other people no. would agree and relate to that. And I, I found an article uh, uh, on Radical.net. It's by David Burnett. And it's five things we can learn from flawed biblical characters. All right. He sa- used the term character. It's not my term. Um, so now with each of these points, there's an explanation that goes along with it. And so, and which I did not write down. So I'm just going to list these. You can find the article on your own. Uh, flawed characters help us personally identify with the truth. And that actually speaks to what I was talking about that when I look at these people in the Bible who are our heroes, I recognize, Oh no, they're just, they're regular people. Like it, it rings true to me, uh, because, because of their flaws. Um, flawed characters put God's mercy on display and that speaks to what you were talking about a moment ago. Flawed characters remind us of God's transforming power, which speaks to Paul, uh, and, and any of these people as well. Uh, flawed characters remind us that God is supreme, which speaks to what I was talking about before that God will not be limited by our flaws. Um, and then lastly, uh, flawed characters point us to Jesus and, because when you think about it, if David was a man after God's own heart to the extent that he made no mistakes at all, then why do we need Jesus? Mm-hmm. If it is possible to be that perfect, then it's like, all I got to do is be like David. Problem solved. Well, no one's going to say that. Now, people, that, but that's the thing. People might look at David with Goliath and think, I should be like David in that moment. But in that moment, David was following God and he was not looking for his own glory. He was looking to just do the right thing. And so at his best, he's at, he, at, you know, at his best, David is humble and simply being obedient at his worst. He's being completely selfish and probably buying into his own hype as the king, you know, because even though God made him king, once you're there, 
I'm sure it's hard not to let that pride seep into you. And suddenly right. it's like, I would like to have sex with that woman. You know what? I think I'm gonna, because I'm I am the king and uh, no one's going to tell me no. And she probably will not either. So, uh, so yeah, like our flaw. So in the same way that when you're reading the Bible and you look at like, Noah, Paul, any of these people, um, eventually you and just like oh my gosh these people are really messed up i thought i was supposed to be emulating them in the end there's only one person that you should be trying to emulate recognizing of course that you won't be able to and that is and that is jesus so these point us towards jesus in the same way that i would say our own flaws should hopefully point us to jesus because that is where we will find forgiveness that is where we will find acceptance that's where we will find renewal and all of the things that will get us out of the mindset of look at this terrible thing I've done. I'm useless. And God, and one thing that we have been talking about is like anybody can be used by God, no matter how terrible they have been. And maybe even how terrible they are. God can use anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing that I wanted to talk about as we, as we wrap up, is the idea of glory. Um, and this speaks to the, the last line of Patton is I think, uh, sorry, we just heard my wife say something funny uh, in the next room. Um, so why does Patton want to lead people and why does he want recognition? If he's truly a humble guy, if he's trying to do the right thing, and if it's simply about leading people because I'm the best person to lead them and I'm the best person to be victorious, then he wouldn't care that he gets the recognition. He wouldn't care that he gets the glory. He'd be Carl Malden. Mm-hmm. Carl Malden is a guy who's very who's very good at what he does. Omar he, Bradley. Omar Bradley. He acknowledges that he's a good soldier, he's a good general, he's a good leader, and so because he's good at it, He's going to do it because it's the right thing to do. But in the end, he's just going to, but when he's done, he's going to go and do his own thing. Um, but Patton can't do that. You know, I mean, he, he has two major rivalries in the film. One is Rommel, who is a general on the other side. And the other is Montgomery, a field marshal who's on his side. Mm-hmm. Why are they rival? Why is he a rival with somebody on his own side? And it's because he needs to be seen as the better right. leader and the better strategist and all of that sort of thing. And so uh, that speaks to, I believe, the term that is used is prima donna. He is very much a, a prima he donna. He says he calls himself that in the movie. That's true, yes. Um, and so. About Montgomery, he says, uh, he says, or to someone else about Montgomery, he says, I know I'm a prima donna, but I know it. The problem is Montgomery doesn't doesn't admit it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just like oh, good for you. Well yeah. done. You've yeah. you've cracked the code, <laughs> Patton. Um and in that same way, now I, I'm not sure I would say that Steve Jobs in the film needs the glory. I think he is a visionary. I think he wants to change the world. But it is also an interesting coincidence that he is the absolute face of every company that he is mm-hmm. a part of. He has to be. And yes, he is charismatic. So you do need a front man when you're presenting these things. But he is very aware that that this stuff is, uh, I don't know. It's. Would you say that he is seeking a certain degree of glory? 
Me? Yeah. I absolutely. Okay. Well, I think he he knows that he's stumbled on, for lack of another phrase, sure. or at least collected what other people have stumbled upon and then mm-hmm. put them together as an orchestra leader, as he calls himself, Yeah, and uh, is essentially taking credit for a lot of other people's work yeah. under the headline, the banner, Steve Jobs, because he knows yeah. that that's going to, A, make the product sellable yeah. and also get him glory. He, he, he wants it. It's like Thomas Edison. He's mm-hmm. like, this is going to be my legacy is this product, this series of products. And his refusal to acknowledge the Apple II people, who the the success of which mm-hmm. helped prop up yep. the Macintosh. So his refusal to acknowledge them might speak to him saying, I don't like the idea that that, that their success helped my success. I want to be able to stand on my own. And so definitely I do go back to, I will say that I, I think Wozniak represents the past, but it's also represents that in the past, Steve Jobs was reliant on other people mm-hmm. and his projects were reliant on more successful projects. And so, um, so yeah, I'd say there's, there's a certain degree of him out for himself. And I do feel, and don't get me wrong, like Christians can be egotistical. Christians can be prima donnas. You know, I realized the other day that I have absolutely no problem speaking in front of people. Um, I, and I think I already knew that, but then I realized that like, yeah, I, I can go up in front of people. And now if someone said, Hey, talk about sports and like, all right, well, I hope you guys are interested in an hour on why I don't like sports. Like that's about as far as I could go. So it's not like I can just st- speak extemporaneously about anything, but I did realize that like I am not self-conscious in the spotlight and I'm not super happy about that fact. Well, you didn't start off that way though. Didn't you used to get, uh, like when the Battleship Retention shows mm-hmm. first started, I thought that you had, like, were nervous about getting in front of people. and I was Here's why I was nervous, because there were other people involved. Uh-huh. I was nervous that I might not be able to respond, that somebody will say something. I was like, hmm, I don't actually know how to respond to that, and I can't have any dead air. But if I'm there alone, there is no dead air, because it's just me. You know, Just you yammering away? Just me yammering away. And so... It's a weird realization, and it's actually something of a freeing realization because, like, oh, all right, that's a. So many people have stage fright, and so many people are, are scared of, of being up in front of people that I was like, oh, that is not a fear I have, and good for me. But it also, I also worry that it speaks to my desire to be in the spotlight and this feeling of like, yes, this feels right, mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. Um, and I certainly do enjoy when people, you know, praise what I've done, and I do not like when people speak poorly of what I've done, but of course nobody likes that. All of this reminds me of uh, sort of a jokey philosophy that I carry with me to this day. I can't seem to shake it. Okay. It's I, I don't need the, uh, the acclaim of the world and I want everyone to know that. There you go. That's fun. That's it. What? what? That's it. Oh, okay. That's the I thought thing. you were asking, that's it? I thought that was pretty good. Are you, and all you're going to say is that's fun? Come on, give me some acclaim. No. Um, No, that's the whole philosophy. So I do think that so many of Steve's flaws, not all of them, although, hang on now. Okay, maybe all of them in the film can be traced back certainly to a certain pride, but also, I think, uh, uh, an idea of his image. Maybe the reason that he is not acknowledging his 
uh, fatherhood is because of how it might appear, hmm. you know, and he is, he has to manage his image. He needs to make sure that he comes across a certain way. And when you're that, when you're concerned about that, another way of saying it, and yes, I am leading us down a, a specific path, but is that he, he's very concerned with his own glory and anything that might detract from his own glory is something he needs to remove. It could be the Apple II people. It could be his own daughter. Whatever the case may be, you will not get in the way of what I want and the recognition that I get for it. And it's the same with Patton. And and when the and when these figures in the Bible, when they put their own glory aside, and when they start working for God's glory, is when they are by far uh, at their best. You know, and of course you'll still stumble along the way, but. Uh, but you'll be much, you'll be better able to pick yourself back up if this is not, all, if this wasn't all about you. Because if it's, I need to look as great as I possibly can, and then you stumble, and it's like, well, I guess it's too late for that. So what's the point of doing anything? Um, meanwhile, if you're working for God's glory and you fall, the very fact that you're that you're picking yourself back up speaks to His glory. Mm-hmm. You know, literally everything can be about that if that's what you want it to be. And so, um, so I have a couple of, uh, I have a couple of verses here, uh, second Corinthians 12. Uh, I don't have the verses specifically in front of me. Um, but there's a, a part talking about, uh, I, the thorn in Paul's side, which he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is not somebody uh, in it for their own glory. When you're boasting about your weakness, which is such a weird way of phrasing it, it's like, hey, I'm... uh, I'm terrified of spiders. God's grace is sufficient. Like it's a weird thing huh? to, to be saying, but, um, but as you say it, it's, it's, Hey, uh, okay. I'll throw it. I'll throw out one of mine. Here's one. I'm not saying you need to throw out one of yours. A and jokey I, philosophy. And I, what? A jokey philosophy. No, no, no. This is a weakness. And oh, this I is see. something I do not like to talk about. Uh, but I've said it before. I'm pretty sure. All right, listeners get ready. Uh, I don't know how to ride a bike. What? I do not know how to ride a bike. That's, I think you told me that years ago, yeah, but almost, I have forgotten. I'm almost 34, and if I had to guess, I'm going to say I will live the rest of my life not knowing how to ride a bike, because uh, I, when I have tried in my adulthood, as it turns out, years of not knowing how to ride a bike are not beneficial if you're trying to learn as an adult. I just had a beautiful image in my mind okay. of me teaching you how to ride a bike, and mm. it's like one of these uh, like beautifully backlit golden hour sort of moments where I release the bike in slow motion, and I say, Go! Go, Tyler, and then you go. And I have you wobble at first, mm, but then you go and I have an image right now of me punching you right in the <laughs> face, and it's actually very—it's like almost uh, neo-realistic, mm. you know. Like it's there's no backlighting or anything like that. It's mm. just handheld camera. It's just a handheld camera on the streets. Natural light in my office right now. This is why I don't tell people about the bike thing. Oh, all right. Sorry. And so, uh, are you sensitive about it? Because I made a joke about it. I didn't realize you were still sensitive about it. Not as much as I used to be, no. Um, Because I can still drive a car. And so it's just like, all right, I can do the the important one. Um, But but that was something that from for my entire life, I was very sensitive about. Because I, 
uh, now the story behind it is so stupid, which is basically I started learning, then my family moved, and as sort of an act of rebellion against the fact that we were moving, I refused to learn. Interesting. Not realizing just how much I was shooting myself in the foot. Yeah, I was six years old. Spite. I wasn't thinking six year old spite. Yeah. It's like a kid who breaks his own toys. Sure. So um and then I then before you know it's like, oh shoot. Years have gone by and uh, I have not learned. Uh-oh. Do you want to learn? I think you can still learn, Tyler. Sure, why not? I don't know. I don't care. Um, After know. we're done here, we'll find a bike somewhere. Okay. And that backlit moment will come true. Mm. I quit pretty easily at things that are difficult for me. There's another weakness. Um, so the reason that I bring up what is to me a, a semi-uncomfortable fact about myself um, something that people have, that kids have made fun of me for. Mm. Um, I mean like last week. Um, no, I'm joking. When I was a kid, you know, others kid, other kids made fun of me for it. Um, the reason I bring it up is because, and I know this may sound strange. No one's going to say God doesn't love you if you don't lo- know how to ride a bike, but it's okay that I don't know how to ride a bike, like in a cosmic sense. And my identity and my sense of self-worth should not be caught up in that. It certainly used to be, but I was a kid. Um, it shouldn't be caught up in that. Um, and the fa- and just now I said something much deeper, which is I quit very easily at things that are difficult for me. Um, and that is not a thing that I am proud of. Uh, and I have success with it. I have failures with it. But that is, but God still loves me. And the fact that I quit things, that's not great. And I should, I should persevere when times get tough, but God loves me anyway. God can still use me for great things. God has still used me for great things. Um, and honestly, the times I am most likely to quit is when I look the worst. If I, because nobody likes to be bad at something and have other people witness it. So I'd rather just not do it and then we're good. So in that moment, So literally this flaw of mine of quitting things that I am bad at comes from a desire to look good and to, you know, have, again, it's weird, weird, weird word to use, but to be glorified myself. And I can't be glorified if people see me hobbling around on a bike. Sure. You know, so, so I, I just wanted to, to mention that. Uh, so that is the idea of, um, boasting, all the more gladly about my weakness. I'm not sure if I'd say I'm gladly boasting about not knowing how to ride a bike, but I wanted to mention that one. What's interesting about that verse, though, is that, and I think it, the fact that he says he's got a thorn in his flesh, messenger of Satan to torment me, he's asked God to take it away from him three times. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, and he's going to boast in the weakness, but he never says what the weakness is, not just in this yeah. verse. I don't think it's ever mentioned. No, there and have I, been. You wonder, like, what the heck was his thorn? Theologians for centuries have but that's been not arguing if you don't what name it might it. be. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What being, could a, it be? being a little cagey. Well, a lot of people suggest that maybe it was a physical malady. Hmm. Some people suggest that maybe it was a, like an emotional thing, like maybe a mental thing. Hmm. Um, other people think it might be just a sin that keeps coming up. A lot of people suggested lust. Hmm. Um, but uh, I guess but, it, yeah. it can only be speculation at this point. Yes, yes. Because he's not around. He's not around. No. Um, so uh, you know, when we when we get to heaven and we see Paul, we're gonna be like, 
all right, look. And he's like, I'm tired of answering this. It was a literal thorn in my side, <laughs> and it wouldn't come out. It was a messenger of Satan. God said, I'm not. It's staying, dude. Yeah. He's like, ah, your skin's grown over it now. I can't do anything thorn about that. Thorn in my flesh, literally. Um, so, uh, another uh, couple verses. So, First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks. A little typo there. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Now, there are tons of verses in the Bible like this where it just gets really hyperbolic about how great God Effusive. is. Effusive. Um, that's a good word use. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, why pick this one over anything else? And I, and, and partially because I feel like I don't quote Chronicles very often, mm. uh, first or second. Um, but, um, like, I just wanted to really, uh, I'm sure there are people that read this and it just doesn't do anything for them. And I'm, I'm usually one of them, but thinking in these terms, the idea of glory and where glory really should, uh, you know, where praise should be heaped upon, um, rather than ourselves who are apt to make, Oh, I'm going to average it out and say 15 mistakes a day and probably, probably five of those are like major mistakes that will have repercussions at least for the next couple of days. Um, at least that's how I've found my own life to be. And so, uh, and maybe, maybe they're not all sin. Maybe some of them are purely mistakes, but one way or another, maybe we shouldn't be seeking our own glory when we realize just how stupid we can be. Um, Whereas this is the, this is the God we're talking about. All strength comes from him. You know, all power comes from him. Everything comes from him. And wouldn't it be maybe not easier, but wouldn't it be better philosophically if we were all working for God's glory, because then failure won't define us. It won't stop us. It might limit us a little bit, but we will continue working. Um, and so here's the last line of Patton. It's voiceover. And there really isn't any voiceover in the film. And it's Patton himself saying, For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal in triumphal chariots, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. Now, first off, that's a great way to end that movie. I love it. That in the midst of this guy being one of the heroes of world war two that the movie about him ends with all glory is fleeting. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who would get in a car accident, be paralyzed and then die. Hardly the glorious end that he wants. 
all glory is fleeting. Now, I can't help but make this a melodramatic type of phrase, but I can't help it. It's just the way it goes. I will now say, not all glory is fleeting. All human glory is fleeting. And yes, there are people that we still talk about to this day. That's all well and good. But they probably, but even after their most glorious moments, they probably still had tremendous moments of flaw and sin. And so, even, even if just on a personal level, their glory was fleeting. The one type of glory that is not fleeting is God's glory. And by tuning into that, you are part of the one thing that will last. And by trying to focus on that, you will find, yes, you, you yourself might get some glory, and that's all well and good. But whether you get glory, whether you get derision won't actually matter. What will matter is that you persevere, you keep doing the things that you're doing. It could just be raising your kids or doing something amazing like, you know, developing the uh, the iPhone or winning World War II. Whatever it might be, um, you'll be able to move forward. And chances are, as Robert, you were talking about, chances are, because you're not working for your own glory, you will also be coming from a place of humility and you will recognize that it is possible to be decent and gifted at the same time, that it is not in fact binary. Um, and on those, in those moments when you're not gifted or you're not decent, those still don't, don't have to define you. You are still a part of God's glory and it's the one, it's the glory that won't, that isn't fleeting, that won't go away. So, um, I will end with Romans 11, verse 36. From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, we will leave it there. Well done. Thank you. I appreciate that glory. (laughs) Wow. You haven't learned anything, have you? What's going on? Uh, Anyway, so, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Uh, Next week provided I can work out the recording times next week will either be a mini-sode about Patton, which is just the way it timed out, or it will be a discussion, uh, about the Tom McCarthy film spotlight. Um, I want to try and make sure that's what it is, but just letting you guys know ahead of time that, uh, that it might be this other thing. So, uh, as it is, uh, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You are welcome to leave comments in the post for this uh, article. Please don't forget to go to morethanonelesson.com. Click on the button that says Survey on the right-hand side. Spend, you know, it'll probably take three minutes uh, to just fill out this survey. It is very helpful to, uh, for you to do so. Um, and I think that is it. Robert, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. And thank you guys for listening, and we'll get you next time. Mm-hmm.